Australia is heading into a federal election in August 2010, and even though we like to think that we have a free press in this country, there's one easy example that demonstrates just where the free press lets us down, and that's in political coverage. Now, during this campaign, we're going to hear discussion about the Liberal Party's policies and the Labor Party's, the National Party, even the Greens. But what about all of the other parties that are out there that represent alternative viewpoints to the mainstream viewpoint? What kind of media coverage did they get? And what kind of media coverage did their viewpoints get in the public discourse? Today, my guest is a candidate from one of those parties. Uh, My name's Ewan Saunders. I'm the Socialist Alliance candidate for the seat of Brisbane in this coming federal election. Mm. Now, as you may be able to tell, I interviewed Ewan uh, during my lunch break at a cafe in Brisbane. So there's a little bit of background noise, a few trucks and buses and cars and a little bit of cafe ambiance. And uh, how old are you? I'm 28 years of age. Well, let's, um, let's start off talking a little bit about uh, your background first. What, what uh, got you into politics, Ewan? Uh, I've been involved in left politics since I started uni, straight out of high school in 2000, the year 2000. Um, I became politicised, I guess, in high school and when I read a, a book by an environmentalist and geneticist uh, David Suzuki, who uh, opened my eyes up, I guess, to the, the environmental crisis. So I started out as an environmentalist, um, quite concerned about uh, the way things are heading in that area, and uh, was looking for a group to join. I, I, I joined a socialist youth organisation uh, the first day of uni back in 2000, and uh, I've been a member of that ever since. And and when you decided to get involved in the uh, activist and political side of things, what led you to uh, a socialist uh, side of politics as opposed to joining one of the, the, the major parties? Uh, possibly a number of factors, I guess. Probably the main one was that uh, my, my father had been involved in the ALP for 30 years. He'd been an activist within the ALP and, and uh, around about that time he was becoming more and more disen- uh, di- yeah, disenchanted uh, with the ALP and the factional backstabbing and of which he was a victim. Um, and... I, I guess I uh, I uh, was always a little bit anti-authoritarian and, and uh, looking for, looking for the more r- radical side of politics. I, I guess and uh, and I guess it's also that the mainstream political parties, and the Greens included, didn't actually offer any easily accessible means for young people to become engaged in politics. As you know, you've got your young Labor, young Liberal, and and so on. The Greens didn't have a, a youth wing or a, a campus-based wing at that time, but uh, like I said, the major parties didn't appeal to me and it was uh, Labor, Liberal and the Socialists who, who offered uh, accessible uh, entry points to politics for uh, young people on, on a university campus. So I went for the Socialists. It doesn't really sound like there was a lot of political ideology behind your decision to join the socials, just where there was opportunity? Was it opportunistic or ideological? Uh, neither, I don't think. It certainly wasn't deeply ideological. I think most young people leaving high school uh, are a bit of a, a blank slate in terms of um, coming, forming their ideas about the world and about politics, and, and I was no different. Um, <laughs> I'll refer back to the book I read in, in year 11, I think it was, that opened my eyes. I had no idea that there was an environmental crisis. I had no idea that, that um, you know, big business and major corporations were largely responsible for it. And uh, so, yeah, prior to that, I had no interest in politics, no knowledge really outside of my, my humble teenage world. But... Uh, uh, it was by chance that I ended up in the socialists, ended up in, in getting involved in radical politics. But shortly after that, I was, uh, you know, I became convinced through the through the activity of, of the group that I've joined that I joined um, in two thousand 
September 11, 2011 to 13, I attended the, I was at the height of the anti-globalisation movement and I, I attended the uh, blockade of the World Economic Forum, which was being held at Crown Casino in Melbourne uh, back in 2000. And uh, it was a, a 20,000 strong protest um, organised solely by the radical left with some union support and uh, and I, I guess I was, I was incredibly impressed by the uh, the impact that a small, uh, seemingly uh, invisible, irrelevant uh, little group could could have on Australian politics. And it was all over the national media. And uh, and uh, while the name of the the, the groups behind the organising uh, wasn't all over the media, it was certainly the case that um, these small socialist groups and uh, you know collaborating together, as well as you know, a small number of anarchist groups and so on were the driving force and were the organisational sort of uh, uh, machine behind this very tightly organised um, mass expression of people's uh, you know, discontent with the with neoliberal globalisation, as it were, back then, and, and third world problems of third world debt and, and so on. So it was opportunistic that led you into you know joining one of the, the socialist parties, but in the intervening 10 years you obviously have developed uh, an ideological basis for your continued activism yes i mean uh, i guess what sets socialist parties apart from uh, mainstream political parties as far as i'm aware anyway is the, is a focus on on political education um uh, there is a conscious approach in the in the socialist alliance and in the youth organisation resistance of of um, uh, you know having discussion groups, reading circles, those sorts of things. So um, that, as well as my studies, I was studying politics back then in uni- university as well, um, helped me form a you know a more rounded understanding of of the world, how the world worked, and and. Uh, you know what some of the major issues of the day were, what, what, what causes were behind uh, some of the major problems um, faced environmentally and socially, and and you know ways we m- might go about overcoming them. Making it my business, I guess, to uh, be acutely aware of the the issues and uh, that are facing um, oppressed people all around the world, and you know not just in the third world, but people who are struggling to get by. In this country, and um, I guess more recently, the, the the climate crisis and the, just the enormity of the problems facing humanity. I guess I feel once once you become aware of of, of the problems we're facing, um, you have a moral obligation, I guess, to do something about it if the if such uh, avenues exist to do so. So. I, I recently spent two weeks in the Northern Territory. Just came back last week, actually. Um, at a uh, there was a national Indigenous and non-Indigenous convergence, and uh, spent four days listening to elders and community leaders from across the territory explaining the the horrific conditions that are being made worse under the the Northern Territory intervention, which was brought in by Howard and has been sustained and extended by the you know, Rudd and now Gillard government and uh, just the conditions that these people face and uh, yet their commitment to struggle on and defend their land and remain on their land and maintain those cultural co- connections uh, it was a very moving experience for me and a lot of the other people who attended that convergence but those are the sorts of things that, 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 that keep the fire in my belly I guess you could say seeing the, the human human impact of of policies that uh, the government so blindly or blithely um, implements without, with no regard for the impact it has on people. Now one of the problems you have with the very concept of socialism in societies like Australia or the USA is that for most of us that are under the age of 70 or 80, our our ideas of socialism and communism have been defined by a pro-capitalist media and pro-capitalist governments and corporations that have been, you know, um, advocating against socialism and communism and, and, and creating a spin against those political movements for the better part of a century, ever ever since it appeared like they were starting to get legs in the early part of the 20th century. 
And, uh, you know, their incentive for doing that is obvious. If socialism or communism gets a hold of a country, then capitalism and the people that are wealthy as a result of capitalism uh, is going to take a backward slide. The people that have the wealth and the power in our countries today want to protect their wealth and power, so they're going to do everything that they possibly can to create a negative impression of what socialism and communism means. They will just uh, spin up some examples of, of failures of, of socialism and communism and use those as the definition of what it stands for rather than look at the, the actual source documents of, of Marxism and, and talk about what socialism or communism, Marxism, really stands for. They'll talk about you know, the horrors of uh, Stalin, the horrors of Mao Zedong, but really those aren't examples of socialism or communism. Those are examples of totalitarianism, which is a completely different thing. Anyway, I asked Ewan to define what socialism means for us. I think it can be explained in, in, in pretty simple terms. I know that the word socialism has uh, some of the worst connotations of you know human behaviour associated with it. You know, based on the example of the of Stalinism in the Soviet Union and the and the way that was used um, to tarnish socialism as a concept, as an ideology, as a as a economic system. But uh, I think the easiest way to explain socialism and and you can actually go back. Uh, got, uh, yourself and look into the, the, the existing policy of the Australian Labor Party for some examples of what what, what socialism means. Um, certainly far from the actual policies that are now implemented by the ALP, but it's still on their books. Uh, and it's about democracy, essentially. D- democracy uh, in the meaning of participatory democ- democracy, ordinary people having actual real control over their own lives, real control, uh, real uh, participation in the decisions that are made that affect their daily lives from the most simple things like building of local infrastructure, schools, roads, public transport to to larger issues, national issues of, uh, you know, how how we plan our agricultural systems, how we how we uh, treat the poorest amongst us and the, the most unfortunate, how we, how we deal with healthcare and illness. Um, socialism is a, a, about uh, participatory democracy, essentially. Um, it's also extending from that uh, about a, a vision of a, a, a different kind of world uh, that, that's not governed by the profit motive. That's uh, a, a system where decisions about how society is run from a micro level to to you know nationwide and international level um, are made rationally according to human need rather than the blind hand of the market and guiding everything and and uh, taking precedence over all other human needs and and what most people would uh, see as basic morality so it's it's a, that, that, that's, I guess, a, a, a good summary, I guess, or a good introduction, at least. There's a couple of interesting things here I'd like to drill down on. How do you differentiate participatory democracy from representative democracy? It's representative democracy, um, as we know it in this country, I mean, as most people understand, it's every three years or so voting in a... Uh, Representative. So, what that is supposed to mean is someone being elected based on presenting a set of policies to the people, and amongst a number of candidates, you pick the candidate whose most policies you most agree with. What we really have in this country is is uh, is not even representative democracy, as most people would. Um, as most people would conceive it, um, I, I think more and more it's it's becoming clear that uh, you know you can look back to the, the Howard days, John Howard, the man who invented the concept of the core promise and the non-core promise. So we can have a, a raft of promises um, thrown at us uh, at election time. Politicians are under no obligation whatsoever to implement any of those promises, um, and. Uh, 
you know, you can look at look at Howard's uh, climate policy as a as a very good example. Um, you know, whatever whatever views his constituents had on on, on climate change and the environment, what what really happened and. Four Corners did a very good job of exposing this a few years ago. Um, a, a small group of mining industry lobby and energy industry lobbyists um, known as the Greenhouse Mafia, and these people were actually writing John Howard's um, climate policy. So if that's re- representative democracy, uh, it doesn't sound too democratic to me. Um, and what was the other part of your question? I'm comparing uh, participatory to representative. Well, I guess uh, participatory democracy would look uh, very different. Uh, participatory democracy, uh, uh, and there are examples, and I can go through you know, a couple of those, uh, would require people to be engaged in politics on a daily level, and that doesn't just mean reading the paper and watching the TV. Um, I visited Venezuela um, in 2005 where uh, you know, a left-wing government got into power in 1998, the Chavez government, and uh, since then has been rolling out new experiments in participatory democracy, and some have worked, some have failed, some have been changed and tailored, and it's an ongoing process. But uh, an example of what can happen is... Um, uh, community councils, so community councils, uh, uh, representatives in your suburb are elected by your suburb. That council meets. Uh, these aren't paid positions, or if you know if they have to be, they uh, they will. The government actually supports them financially in Venezuela. The uh, bodies of participatory democracy, and and uh, people people are being empowered, and people are being allowed to come together and make decisions about their local community. Uh, not just on a, a local level, but getting onto larger and larger levels geographically. But conversely, what we have in Australia is a word that you know makes your hair stand on end a lot of the time, which is consultation and community consultation. And uh, and for any major development project, I mean, the 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 illusion of democracy is there. The illusion of participation is there through the you know the compulsory consultation processes governments are required to. Uh, to undergo and and uh, you know you are allowed to submit your views on this or that tunnel or bridge or development in your area but in the end uh, there's no requirement that the government has to submit to popular opinion or, or popular desire of a, a community or a suburb so um, uh, I guess that, that that's the difference uh, I think between real participatory democracy and what we have in in this country uh, which is you know when it comes down to it a facade of democracy uh, there is some democracy we do have, um, you know, we, didn't have, we have a lot of freedoms in, in this country that are denied a lot of people in other countries. But uh, at the same time, when it comes to making the real decisions um, in terms of the development of this country uh, from a local to a national level, those decisions aren't in the hands of the community. If you're interested in drilling down further into the differences between a participatory democracy and a representative democracy, you might want to listen to episode 350 of G'day World that I recorded way back on the 6th of October 2008 with American author Richard J. Moore, who wrote a book called Escaping the Matrix, which uh, we, we, we drilled down into some real-life examples of participatory democracy in quite a bit of detail. One of the things that impresses me about the Socialist Alliance and this campaign is uh, when I looked through your list of policies and your position on those policies, I not only agree with them, but it's the only uh, policy platform of any of the parties that I've seen in Australia, really, that uh, where I find, yeah, this is actually tackling most of the issues that I'm passionate about. The only one in your list of policies, or the only thing I see missing is the internet filter. Um, and, you know, I think other parties like the, the sex party, which has an unfortunate... Uh, name, but uh, have you know similar platform to you guys. But let's let's go over your policies uh, one by one and talk about them in a little bit of detail. Um, you've over, you've already touched on the environment. It's obviously a, a you know an issue that personally you're very passionate about. What's SA's uh, policy on climate change? I brought it with me actually because we've just released our third uh, climate charter, uh, revised edition. So uh, I, I am going to cheat. We've got a lot of facts and figures and numbers in our policies, and I, I, uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that I don't know all of them off the top of my head. Um, but I can give you the general 
uh, thrust. But uh, I guess in terms of numbers, Socialist Alliance uh, supports a global target of at least 90% emissions cuts on 1990 levels by the year 2030. And... Uh, here we uh, we uh, have set a target to achieve 100% renewable energy by 2020. Uh, so, with, always with our climate policy, we've aimed to base it on the best available climate science. And our position is that anything less than that is uh, is a political decision uh, that is not in the interest of the planet, but in the interest of the vested interests who are trying to uh, avert action on climate change and uh, and. Uh, and that's a threat to my kids' future and my kids' kids' future. And uh, I think it's essential that any party that calls itself serious about climate change needs to first look at the science and then base their policy on that science. Like I said, anything else is a political capitulation uh, to vested interests and uh, the world, nature doesn't negotiate, unfortunately. So... So strong emissions reduction targets based on the science, um, but I guess where we differ from every other political party is that we see the backbone of um, the transition to renewable energy and the sustainable economy as being as twofold. One as being led by uh, social movements, by the the grassroots climate movement, which we're closely involved with in this country. Um, we know that in order to overcome the the power of the fossil fuel lobby it's going to take a, a massive human effort and uh massive grassroots effort in terms of uh, coalescing uh, the, uh, all those people who are active around climate change and sustainability in their suburbs into a powerful climate movement in this country uh i guess uh, the other backbone of of the transition to you know 100 renewable energy and and uh, the safe emissions targets that science um has, has told us is safe uh, is uh, massive public investment and uh, and public investment and public ownership uh, has to be at the centre of the transition. Uh, we support uh, emissions reductions uh, or a safe uh, carbon emission constant carbon concentration in the atmosphere between 300 and 325 parts per million. Uh, there is still. Uh, uh, I have to get myself more familiar with the Greens policy, but um, I, I think there are, while it has a very good policy, the Greens still don't have a policy that's 100% based on the science. They haven't set strong enough targets and they haven't set uh, strong enough uh, demands, I guess, on, on, on the emissions reductions and the, the what we would need to uh, roll out 100% renewable energy in Australia. Let, let me pause there for a second, mate. I mean, there's... Um, let, let's... Uh, compare your policy on climate change to you know what people are likely to be hearing from the major parties um, and from you know a lot of the fear-mongering that happens out there in the mainstream media that uh, paid for by the mining lobby um, you know this target of a hundred percent renewable by 2020 10 years say nine years really practically um, how uh, how achievable and economically feasible do you believe that is? Okay, uh, a, a good place to look for your listeners would be a report that's just been released by a very talented group of uh, academics, engineers, and so on in Victoria. They're called Beyond Zero Emissions or BZE. And they have a website. They re just recently released and to to a, quite a bit of uh, positive media their uh, ten year plan for uh, transitioning the economy this in this country to one hundred percent renewable, and that is as I said based on the science and based on what's necessary to stop us from crossing the real tipping points that will make climate runaway climate change un ir irreversible. And uh, you know, the devastating impacts that that's that's going to have. So uh, their plan is a massive plan, and there's no mistaking the enormity of the crisis we face uh, is going to require enormous measures. And uh, nothing short, essentially, of a war-type economy is required to uh, to enact the BZE 100% renewables 10-year plan. And uh, and Socialist Alliance supports that plan. Uh, it's the first plan of its types, not to say it's the only way uh, those sorts of targets can be achieved, but it's currently the only 
fully costed, fully fleshed out model in terms of uh, where we're going to get the materials, where we're going to get the workers, what needs to be done to the power grid in this country, um, what extra skills training uh, we need to do in this country, which industries uh, you know might disappear and suffer, and, and uh, which industries might might grow massively. So uh, I guess it, it is a massive program that is necessary in order to avert runaway climate change. And I think as countries like Australia are the best place uh, to, to, to embark on these sorts of programs. And when you look at the amount of money that's being um, you know, earmarked for things like the National Broadband Network, uh, and, uh, and other initiatives, not to mention you know, some of the ridiculous uh, uh, pursuits on military spending that happen in this country and for the new equipment we're, quite frankly, wasting billions of dollars on. Um, and everyone can think back to the Collins-class submarine debacle and, and so on. Um, the, the money is there. It's a question of political will. But no doubt about it, it's, what needs to happen is going to cause, you know, it's going to create massive changes in, in our, our economy and our way of life. Um, not talking about a necessarily lower standard of living, but, you know, things are going to have to change. We're going to have to make houses more energy efficient. We're going to have to make business uh, more energy efficient. We're going to have to roll out renewable uh, public transport on a much bigger scale than we have now and, and reduce people's individual reliance on motor vehicles. Um, but I, I guess the core of the Social Science policy is that we can't leave it to the market and there is no example and never has been an example of the market being able to affect an economy-wide transformation like the one that's needed to uh, you know, to reduce our, our national and global emissions uh, to, to the level what they, that they need to be, which is uh, reducing eventually to a zero-emission economy and then starting to reclaim carbon out of the atmosphere. That's what we need to do to avoid these dangerous tipping points. We leave it to the market. A, it's not going to get there in the time, this, in the time we have left, and B... Uh, workers will be thrown on the scrap heap, families will be thrown on the scrap heap because the market doesn't uh, doesn't automatically implement a just transition, which is what the climate movement in this country is calling for. So uh, workers in affected industry need to be retrained on full pay. Workers in, in effective industri affected industries, uh, instead of, uh, you know, if we do have communities centred around uh, mining, that uh, a coal mine that may need to disappear or be shut down, then that's the geographical location where we need to start setting up uh, manufacturing for renewable energy uh, technology and that sort of thing. As well as, you know, it, it can also, it's also able to provide a massive boost to the economy. You know, tens of thousands of new jobs can be created. The ZCA 2020 report, which I read yesterday, is saying 80,000 jobs it will create to create. Basically, I mean, they're, they're generating most of the power for the grid uh, through concentrated solar thermal, so huge, uh, you know, solar towers uh, and uh, wind farms, wind farms spread across the country. So lots of jobs, as you say, manufacturing that stuff, rolling it out, deploy it, maintenance, management, et cetera, et cetera. That's right, that's right. And it's also, you know, it could revitalise the, the dwindling manufacturing industry in this country. Um, and manufacturing jobs are flying out of this country and uh, meanwhile, you know, the expansion of the mining sector, which in comparison to the renewables sector, is far, produces far less, less employment for people and it's, um, you know, a lot of it's um, very transitory employment, whereas, uh, you know, renewable energy industries and Greenpeace has also reduced, uh, produced a recent major, major report on um, uh, looking more at a global taking more of a global look at the, the employment prospects for um, a global transition to renewable energy and uh, that's uh, that's massive there's massive potential which just points to the fact that again that the, the problems are not economic the barriers are not economic they're political the uh, environment movement has learned from the mistakes in the past of, uh, of the past in terms of uh, greenies versus the uh, forestry forestry workers and the you know, the impossible political battle of, of fighting not just uh, the, the big companies and the bosses, but the, the workers themselves. Once the environment movement pits themselves against the ordinary uh, workers in these industries, we're never going to win. Uh, it needs to be and can only ever be won by uh, uh, appealing to those workers and getting those workers on side. 
so what what has been happening is uh, climate groups and anti-coal groups uh, going out to coal affected communities talking to coal miners we've toured former coal miners um, turned renewable energy campaigners and and uh, you know one of those who visited Brisbane recently made it very clear that workers in the, the fossil fuel sector are acutely aware that theirs is a dying industry and that it will not and cannot last forever and uh, you know despite the climate denial campaign even workers in these industries are aware that you know climate change is happening something has to be done uh, but like anyone they're worried about what's going to happen to me what's going to happen to my family and that's why uh, you know, the current trajectory the government's on, which is about either inaction or leaving it to the market, is, is a terrifying prospect. What we need is real leadership on, on, on this issue that, that guarantees that workers will not be thrown on the scrap heap and have their livelihoods destroyed in order to you know, rescue the environment or rescue the climate. Uh, so that's, that's the battle that the, the, the climate movement is waging because we know that unless we get workers on side, uh, we're not going to win this battle. And that goes to the importance of, uh, of, of unions joining the struggle and trade unions. And, and uh, that's already starting to happen. Let's look at uh, some of the other um, policy highlights here um, that people may have a reaction to. Um, indigenous rights. Um, you've, you've mentioned that the uh, ALP government under Rudd and now Gillard have really just been maintaining uh, to a large degree some of the uh, interventions, quote-unquote, that were started by the Howard government. I mean, uh, Rudd got up and said sorry and then completely seems to have forgotten the Indigenous people of this country. I mean, what does SA think we need to do in terms of the disgraceful conditions that our Indigenous people are living in? Um, the, the other disgrace is that the answers have been there for a long time and uh, one thing that governments do year in year out is commission reports and royal commissions and, and, and uh, from these reports and royal commissions come, come uh, fantastic recommendations and, uh, and the recommendations have been made, the ideas are there, the plans are there to to take the Abri Aboriginal people in this country uh, out of the third world conditions that they've been subjected to and uh, and 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 for real solutions the problem is that none of these very few of these recommendations are implemented i mean the the uh, 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, for instance, we, we're in a situation now where Aboriginal deaths in custody are increasing, increasing. So, I mean, that's just a, a blatant refusal of government, I guess, to take take this question seriously and to and to. Uh, you know, to implement the recommendations are there. So, uh, you said, what does what does social science think needs to be done? Well, uh, a good start, and the only way to start, I think, is is to begin empowering Aboriginal people to uh, to overcome uh, the issues that are that are facing them. And you know, there's lots of racist um, lies and misunderstandings and illusions out there. Um, that, that back up the idea that Aboriginal people can't move forward or don't want to move forward, they don't want jobs, they don't want development, this and that. Uh, none of which are true, none of which are true. And, and uh, anyone who's worked in Indigenous communities and worked in Indigenous, um, studied Indigenous studies or worked in Indigenous policy knows that Aboriginal communities want jobs, they want schooling for their children and the jobs is, are not there and the the, the, the money, uh, you know, a lot of money is uh, thrown, you could say, at the uh, Aboriginal people. So little of it actually gets to the ground um, and, you know, whole white bureaucratic layers have been built up in between, uh, you know, the taxpayer and, and our Aboriginal people and, and that, that's where the money's going. And what's happened since the rollout of the Northern Territory intervention it's, we really have gone back to the 1950s um, and, and it's, it's having such a devastating effect on Aboriginal people it's, it's, it's quite appalling and like I said I've just been uh, to the NT over the last couple of weeks um, to, 
hear from affected communities and see the impact of, of the intervention and hearing statistics like incarceration rates almost doubling, um, health outcomes are just going through the floor um, and, and employment, um, a thousand, thousands of community jobs have been actively taken away, have been abolished in, in, under the Northern Territory intervention through the uh, gradual abolition of the Community Development Employment Program, the CDEP. Uh, what's popping up in their place is work for the doll schemes and a lot of people would have heard of welfare quarantining so 50% uh, of welfare payments being put on this basics card that can only be spent at uh, certain supermarkets so uh, in effect going back to the days of the ration cards we've got Aboriginal workers who previously had real jobs in the communities now being forced onto work for the doll programs getting paid the equivalent of four dollars an hour plus rations that's happening in 21st century Australia so you know meanwhile uh, community run services have been taken out of community hands uh, white administrators on two hundred thousand dollar a year salaries are being paid to run these these services that the communities were doing very well and turning a profit at, at running themselves equipment's been confiscated from uh, communities uh, like I said jobs have been lost we got white contractors working on sixty seventy dollars an hour uh, in, in jobs that were occupied by Aboriginal people in their own communities so things are going backwards very dramatically um, under the Howard and, and this government. The solutions are there. It's, it's Aboriginal empowerment. It's about providing real jobs for Aboriginal people on their land and uh, maintaining that that uh, connection to land that, that still exists um, in, in parts of Australia. Once that connection to land is broken, and that's what a lot of um, us in the city don't understand, uh, the connection between Aboriginal people and their land, uh, once that connection is broken, that's where the social social problems start emerging. And uh, and that's a very deliberate strategy of, of, of the Northern Territory intervention. It's been to now, under Jenny Macklin, uh, starve Aboriginal communities um, off their lands and forcing them into these shires, these mega shires uh, where the, the cultural connection to the land is broken, communities die, wither away, people are forced to move to the cities and, and there's, there's no jobs there, there's no employment, um, uh, you know, all these social problems that, that were on their way to getting solved or could have been solved uh, are just re-emerging and it's the, the same old story. You know, for... Um you know, a lot of Australians who I talk to in the cities, they don't really uh, grasp, I think, the the problem that we have with the Aboriginal people in Australia and why it's our fault. I hear people all the time say, well, it's, it's not my fault, it's their fault. I mean, why do you think uh, this is such an imperative for people in the, the cities of Australia to take seriously? I think... I mean, there's the moral issues, there's a the historical debt, and that's what a lot of people don't understand, and, and uh, you know, uh, people can't be blamed for not understanding the, the depth and the history of the, the, the problems that face Aboriginal people in this country, and, uh, but uh, like any other colonial country, this country was built on the dispossession of Indigenous people, uh, the theft of Indigenous land, the exploitation of that land, and... Uh, and the use of indigenous labor as slave labor and, and uh, very cheap labor and the i guess the disturbing thing is that in this country it was happening up until very recently you know the late 1960s uh, I mean, had the aboriginal protection act and and so on and the uh, aboriginal pastoral workers you know the the vast tracts of land that were given away for or leased at uh, ridiculously low rates to um, you know to British um, and other uh, pastoral companies. Uh, the the labour that built the pastoral industry in this country was Aboriginal labour. So there's that debt, and you know, and the question of stolen wages um, of uh, the government and, and the Aboriginal protection agencies uh, withholding Aboriginal wages that, and wages that to this day have never been paid. 
there's there's a very real debt there, um, and and you know we had under Peter Beatty uh, uh, the beads and feathers response to that, offering Aboriginal families four thousand dollars if they just shut up and go away about stolen wages. The uh, Aboriginal people in this country have been massacred, have been uh, systematically uh, you know bred out of the population in, in a lot of areas through you know systematic government policy and racist assimilationist policies, but. Uh, as long as there are still Aboriginal people in this country, there's that. Uh, there, uh, there's always going to be uh, uh, ju- injustice in this country that that has not been resolved. And uh, I guess in order to have a decent, just society, you know, we've got to face up to the the injustices of the past and the present. Let's move on and talk about um, Iraq and uh, Afghanistan and Iran and some of your uh, geopolitical. Uh Policies. Uh, when I mentioned on Twitter that I was going to chat with you today, uh, one of my uh, friends on Twitter asked what SA's position on Israel was and was pleased to know that uh, you were pro the liberation of the Palestinian people. Let's talk about your general positions on these sorts of issues. Let's start with um, <laughs> Iraq. Uh, we oppose the invasion of Iraq and the Socialist Alliance um, supports the departure of all occupying foreign troops from Iraq. Uh, um, Afghanistan? Same policy. Um, Israel? Uh, Socialist Alliance um, opposes the occupation of, uh, of Palestine, the Palestinian territories by Israel and exposes uh, the ex- opposes the expansion of Israel and uh, we we support an independent Palestinian state. And Basically, you'd, you'd like to see Australia supporting the United Nations General Assembly position on it for the last 30 years? It would be nice if, um, uh, you know, if, if the countless resolutions um, condemning Israel's illegal occupation were, were backed up with a bit of uh, political might um, in, instead, of, instead of the current positions of Australia and the biggest backer of uh, Israel's illegal occupation in the United States. East Timor? Uh, we support a fully independent East Timor. Um, we oppose the Australian government's um, continuing attempts to uh, steal um, gas and oil from the Timor Sea in, in territory that, that under international maritime law should be East Timor's. Um, before the social science had a position, I guess, on East Timor, um, we were uh, we, the socialist uh, socialist movement. Well, the the, the the part of the socialist movement that the socialist alliance um, uh, consists of supported Australian troops into East Timor to stop the slaughter. And I, I was involved in the Democratic Socialist Party back then, and and um, we we certainly. Uh, supported Australian troops into East Timor to stop the slaughter, and that was a call coming from the, our contacts in the independence movement in East Timor. Um, they feared a, a, a scorched earth policy. That's what the Indonesian military was implementing. Uh, since then, you know, the uh, the occupying forces have, have shown that you know uh, Australia wants something back from that. They want a, they want economic do- domination over over East Timor. But uh, yeah, we. Uh, we think East Timor needs it's uh, needs to be able to develop independent of um, Australia, the Australian government um, sucking its resources and independence away from it. So, uh, let's talk just the last one on the policy side of things. Let's talk about asylum seekers. Um, obviously, our immigrant prime minister uh, has decided she doesn't like immigration now. Uh, and is the first Prime Minister in history, I believe, to be calling for a small Australia policy rather than a, a, an expansion of our population base or a controlled expansion. Um, what's, what's the Socialist Alliance position on asylum seekers and immigration in general? Uh, refugees are not illegal and no, no people are illegal. That's, that's the Socialist Alliance position. Uh, I think Australia has a international obligation under the commitments it's made under the UN Convention to accept any and all um, people seeking asylum from uh, persecution, war and oppression. Um, so we simply call on the Australian government to honour those obligations. Uh, we want to see an end to mandatory detention, which has been 
proven not only as potentially the most expensive way of dealing with um, the asylum seekers, but also the most inhumane and uh, the you know the massive lifelong psychological problems that are inflicted by the system of mandatory detention detention on people who have already. Uh, face terrible, terrible things in their home countries. Uh, that needs to end. And uh, Gillard's push for uh, offshore, you know, expansion of offshore detention. Uh, we certainly oppose that, uh, just as the Timorese government did as well. Uh, so, uh, in terms of immigration, uh, you know, if uh, we don't, I think the. I still haven't uh, figured out the basis of Gillard's opposition to the big Australia policy. I mean, any any capitalist economy will, will take labour where it's needed, and uh, if that comes through, has to come through immigration, then so be it. Uh, you know, I don't don't have a position opposing um, immigration on on any particular basis, really. Um, and uh, you know, some would argue that there's a, a environmental argument for uh, reducing Australia's population that's a debate that's still ongoing in the socialist alliance my my personal position um, is the uh, the link between population growth and climate change as, as is being made in sections of the climate movement uh, simply isn't there uh, and, and it's based on the, the wrong assumption that uh, market activity is is determined by uh, consumer trends um, i don't believe that so i think market activity is determined by the, the cartels and uh, conglomerates that run our society okay um let's let's finish up then mate by talking about your election campaign strategy um how much exposure do you think Socialist Alliance is going to get from the mainstream media in the run-up to the election over the next couple of weeks? Short answer, not much. Um, the mainstream press for many years has had a general policy of blacking out, uh, imposing a media blackout on, on any but the, the major parties. Uh, obviously, the Greens is more and more considered a major party, and uh, they are a, a real third force in Australian politics. Beyond the Greens, in terms of smaller parties, we tend to get ignored, uh, but we have picked up a little bit of media coverage, especially in um, regional centres where the, the media is smaller, I guess. Um, uh, we, we are getting some attention, but uh, you know we don't we don't expect a, a free ride from the media, and and we don't uh, expect the media to take a, take a lot of interest in us. Uh, I guess my my own position is that the media tends to prop up the status quo, and those um, those seriously challenging that tend to be ignored or laughed at. Um, even the ABC. Uh, yeah, even the ABC. I mean, I think. I'm, I'm less and less convinced that the ABC is um, a bastion of uh, uh, socialism in the in this government. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, ba- just based on, on previous experience, we haven't got a lot of bites from the mainstream press. However, um, it's it's a lot of hard work to to get that attention. We need to pick the issues. We need to be consistent in terms of um, putting out those media releases. In terms of using the media as, as best we can in terms of getting their attention. It's just difficult, though. Yeah. So how do you plan to get people's attention and what are you going to do with it once you've got it? I mean, wh- how much of the primary vote do you hope to get and where do your uh, alliances lay in terms of preferential votes? Um, we've always preference from left to right politically. Um, we'll be calling... The, for first preference after Socialist Alliance to go to the Greens and uh, to put Liberals last and we uh, leave it up to uh, the our members and activists campaigning in, in the local their local areas and their federal electorates to decide uh, the particular flow of preferences um, What about the SEP, the Socialist Equality Party? I believe they're running some candidates. What's the r- relationship with them? That, as I understand, is mostly limited to, possibly all limited to New South Wales. They are running a handful of candidates. Uh, 
I, uh, my understanding of the SEP is that they are uh, one of the more fringe um, socialist sects, not to... <laughs> is aren't all socialist sects fringe, basically? <laughs> uh, I, I saw that they referred to you in a recent uh, article as a pseudo-left party. Oh, there's fringe and there's fringe. Um, uh, there's small... They're the Judean people's front. <laughs> um yeah, yeah. Look, I, 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 I don't have a lot of uh, knowledge on the matter. I haven't studied the SEP um, all that much. Um, I only heard uh, anecdotes from our, our comrades interstate, and and that um, they are one of the you know smaller, more uh, uh, the, the the type of socialist group again. Who, as I said earlier, defines itself as the future of the revolution in Australia to the exclusion of all others. Um, you know if. Uh, it would depend on who is running in the particular seats, I guess, in terms of where we preference them. You know, we, we will preference socialist above uh, uh, right wing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I I, no comment, really. I don't, I don't know enough about the, the SEP. There's about 15 um, tiny socialist groups in Australia. Um, and uh, I, I think the Socialist Alliance is really the only one um, running a serious election campaign across the country. Okay, so you guys preference to Greens. Um, what, so what is your strategy? Obviously, you don't think you're in a position to, to get uh, any meaningful power. You hope to win a, a seat or two, I, I would imagine. But, um, you know, what is your strategy for influencing political platform from here on in? I guess at, uh, at this stage in Australian politics, the Greens is that third force um, to the left of Labor. Certainly, the Socialist Alliance hopes to be that force one day, and and uh, you know that's not necessarily to the exclusion of the Greens. There's you know there's always possibilities for regroupment and uh, you know alliances, future alliances being formed. But at, at this stage, um, you know where we're unlikely to win. The, 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 there's a lot of there's a lot can, that can be gained from running in elections and we can expand our our, uh, our our name I guess in terms of recognition it gives us an opportunity to talk to more people to build our base to build build the socialist alliance and to get socialist ideas out there and the, the little cracks in the media we do manage to to climb through um, at the same time we always do all we can to, to build stronger alliances um, with those uh, those left um, people in the greens and uh, and you know support greens campaigns where we can and exchange um, preferences where we're able um, you know unless preference deals are already done um, and I think uh, the greens candidate that you're running against is Andrew Bartlett former leader of the Democrats that's right. Yeah, Andrew's um, joined the Greens. He's a he's a great candidate, a dedicated advocate of social justice um, for most of his life, and uh, yeah, I, I wish him all the best. Uh, I actually did hear a rumour that um, we were going to be seeing Peter Beattie flying back into the seat of Brisbane to relieve uh, Arch Bevis. I don't think that's going to happen this time around, but. Um, Labor sure needs a shake-up in the seat of Brisbane, um, and you know there's the jokes, uh, the jokes on uh, on Bevis that he's the uh, the phantom, um, the phantom politician that no one ever sees, and until election times, so, uh, you know he's far far too comfortable in his seat, and uh, I'm I'm really hoping that Andrew can give him a bit of a, a, a shake-up, but uh, if not this election, then next time. Um, well, I'll just. We've got a final idea of way of wrapping up. You, you mentioned at the beginning of our chat that um, you know the idea that a lot of people have in their minds about socialism or communism comes out of what they've heard about uh, the USSR um, and or China or in a lot of cases Cuba. Um, how would you, just in terms of final thoughts for people, how would you suggest they think about those uh, governments over the course of the 20th century and how it relates to socialism in the 21st century? It's a very good question. Um, you know, I think the socialist movement, like, like any political movement, is, has been one with its ups and downs and its twists and turns and uh, the, the struggle for uh, a decent humanist political movement um, 
is always it's always a struggle it's always a struggle there's always going to be forces who uh, want to drag you to the right there's always going to be forces who who uh, you know want to gain individual privilege over the interests of the majority and and that's the battle that's always been waged in in any party of the people and it was the same in this Bolshevik Party in the Soviet Union, the, the battles that were waged there against the rise of Stalinism, those battles that were lost, um, and uh, and certainly in the socialist movement in Australia, um, there have been battles, um, you know, to maintain the democratic name of, of, of socialism and the democratic project of socialism. And, but, um, you know, we learn from the struggles of the past, uh, learn from the defeats and the mistakes of the past, um, in terms of rescuing the the name socialism from the uh, you know from the discredited um, socialist projects of the past and the bureaucratization of the Soviet Union and so on, um, uh, I think Hugo Chavez in Venezuela has, um, has has taken the right tack and and talks now of the socialism of the 21st century. So. Trying to make that break in people's minds from uh, between a, this new, a new kind of socialism as uh, as opposed to the old, the old kind of socialism. What that means to uh, individuals is is probably different for uh, different people. Um, who knows? Maybe one day the word socialism will disappear and we'll, we'll come up with a new term. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess um, the concrete way we can we can combat misperceptions of, of, of socialism as an ideal and as a as a social and economic project is is through example and uh, and through engaging ourselves in the campaigns on the ground, working with communities where they're they're um, you know they're they're under under attack and struggling and suffering. And uh, socialist alliance needs to be the party that's that's always there, standing alongside people on the ground fighting their battles with them and helping to strengthen their, their struggles for you know, a better life and a better world. Of course, one of the things that you, you know, the major parties are probably going to avoid completely discussing over the next few weeks is the massive failure of capitalism that we've witnessed in the last few years. Uh, it seems to have completely disappeared uh, out of uh, the, the popular discourse. I mean, how much of that do you think the Socialist Alliance can use to engage people? Probably not a whole lot, unfortunately. I think, um, you know, it's true that Australia did escape the worst ravages of the global financial crisis, um, you know, and those effects are, are being felt a lot more in Europe and were felt a lot more in the US. Um, so in that sense here, it's it's much more difficult to point out exactly what happened, which is uh, uh, corruption on a massive scale um, and, uh, and a bailing out by the taxpayer. So the privatisation of uh, wealth uh, being squandered and, and, and messed up and a crisis creative, created and, and, you know, that crisis being socialised and picked up by the the people who can least afford to pick it up and you know the trillion dollar or so bailout um, in the US of banks and uh, insurance companies uh, and they're doing it again and, and you know the, the specul speculators are back at work and the the um, you know the hedge funds and and the, the dodgy deals are, st are being done again and and uh, people in the US are, are paying for it and and across Europe and in this country though it's you know uh, we we don't, didn't have the the movements like they did in the UK of um, you know the effigies of bankers being strung up by by lamp posts um, I think the the effects were felt much more there and it was a lot clearer. Um, who was responsible for the crisis in this country, um, not so much. So uh, that's probably not an angle we can exploit. Well, thanks for chatting to us, Ewan, and uh, good luck with the election. Thank you so much, Cameron. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, obviously, the election's coming up in just a couple of weeks now, and if you want to make your vote count, I strongly suggest you don't vote for either of the major parties. At the very least, vote for the Greens and try and send the major parties that, as we all know by now, are pretty much just the lap dogs of a range of corporate interests. 
we need to send them a message. And one way of doing that is giving a huge amount of primary vote to the minor parties or to the independents that have policies that actually reflect your views. It doesn't matter whether or not these parties are able to form government. Uh, if they get a significant bump in primary vote, the major parties will see that these issues are of importance to Australians and they may start to adjust their policies accordingly. In a negative sense, that's what happened in the 90s in Australia with One Nation under Pauline Hanson. Uh, she was basically just considered to be a, a joke by the major parties until she started to win a couple of seats and then they quickly adopted her, some of her racist, uh, white Australia, no immigration type policies, unfortunately, to the great shame of Australia. Anyway, uh, um, I suggest you go and read up on the Socialist Alliance, socialist-alliance.org is their website. Have a look through their policies and, uh, you know, have a think about what you want Australia to stand for. Um, You know, you have control to some extent, whether you believe it's small or great, over the things that Australia does uh, and how Australia is represented both at home and abroad. And the best way that we have at this stage to make our voice heard is to send a vote for socialist parties, greens parties or independents in this upcoming federal election. I hope you enjoyed the the show, the interview with Ewan, and um, I'll be back soon with another interview with uh, my friend Adam Shand, journalist in Melbourne. He's been doing some digging with a little bit of help from me over the last few months into Hillsong and Mercy Ministries. And uh, there's been a couple of articles that came out recently as a result of that. We hope that as a result of some of these investigations Adam has been doing, the Australian Tax Office are going to look into the tax-free wealth that these dodgy, happy-clapper churches are amassing. Anyway, that's coming up in the course of the next few days with Adam Shan. Thanks for listening. This is Cameron out. Yeah. 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 Yeah.